Good morning once again. Thank you for being here, uh, particularly if you are visiting this morning. Uh, thank you for being here. We uh, hope that you will come next Sunday and the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that as well. As a congregation, we're making our way through Mark's gospel. We are in a passage of that gospel in which uh, there is a new section. It may not feel that as you hear uh, this uh, passage from 8 verse 27. There's actually a change in Mark's gospel at this point. Jesus begins to prepare his disciples to know more and more about what it is that he's to do in Jerusalem. That's true even as they are walking in this passage away from Jerusalem. But from Mark 8, 27 through 10, 52, here Jesus is preparing his disciples for what will happen in Jerusalem. Uh, the passage this morning is on page 844 of your pew Bible. Uh, we'll be looking at Mark 8, verse 27. Little theologians, I want to thank you for being here this morning. If you could listen to me real quickly, little theologians, if I could have your attention. As I'm preaching this morning, would you consider drawing a picture for me? And draw a Christmas picture. Draw a picture of walking through a Christmas village, Christmas lights everywhere. Can you imagine if you're doing that, it's very hard to talk about anything other than Christmas. So it's not quite the right month, but draw that for me. Because the location of this passage, though it's not in a Christmas village, is very important. So good morning to you, little theologians. Before we read this passage, join me in prayer. Let's pray together. The Father, as we come to this word, we pray that you would shift our attitudes, soften our hearts, prepare us to hear your word and to understand. Would we trust that you're using my lips, that the clarity of your word would be held forth? And as I err, Father, would your spirit still give us understanding, proper, true understanding of this passage for us. Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage is Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 27, page 844 of your pew Bible. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I hope you, mean, you understand what I mean when I say this, that a question can be very destabilizing. Here in our passage, you see, don't you, there's actually two questions. But a single question can actually be very destabilizing, particularly if we don't know the answer to the question. And in my experience, I've found that the little theologians who are with us this morning, they tend to ask the most potentially destabilizing questions of all. Sometimes a child will ask us a question that is humorous. Do pets go to heaven when they die? Maybe that's not humorous. 
but it's certainly a lot less serious than those questions that, well, are a little bit awkward for us when a little theologian asks, what does it mean that Mary is a virgin? It's a little bit more awkward. But really, some of the questions that we can be asked by children can be absolutely challenging. If God loves all people, why does he send some of them to hell? Why should any of them go to hell? And if he forgives sins, why in the world should I stop sinning? Some of the questions that our little theologians will ask us are uh, downright dangerous. If I stop believing in Jesus, is there a possibility that I would ever go to hell? Your questions can be destabilizing, not all of them. But we have in this passage two questions, and they're asked by none other than our Lord and King, Jesus. We should know that uh, when Jesus asks questions in the Bible, he's not asking because he's seeking the answer because he's been unable to discern it himself. At Jesus, he, he knows all hearts. And if you're familiar enough with Mark's gospel, if you've been with us for even uh, three weeks, you know that when Jesus asks a question, Jesus is asking the question that it might be a teaching opportunity. Not that he might learn something new, but that he might teach his disciples something new. The Bible teaches very clearly that understanding who Jesus is, is the most important question of your life. Not just the life of those who profess faith in Jesus, everyone's life. This is the most important question. Who is Jesus? The Bible teaches this throughout. Even if you think that this is a foolish question or a foolish assertion, and this passage is about understanding who Jesus is and knowing that understanding who Jesus is is the most important thing in life. But this passage is also about Jesus who takes even a very little understanding of himself and promises to cause it to grow. Understanding who Jesus is is the most important thing in life. And Jesus, in his great mercy and patience and love, is willing to take even a little understanding of himself and cause it to grow. And we want to begin in this passage at just the first half of the first verse, because the location of this passage is actually very important. And then we're going to look at the people whom the disciples are referring to when they answer Jesus' first question. But really where we're going is asking ourselves what we believe about Jesus. But the location's important. Look at verse 27. Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. Where do you think they're going? The Bible Atlas will show you that they're going to a very beautiful place near the source of the Jordan River on the slopes of Mount Hermon. It's beautiful, it's fertile, it's desirable. It's also a place where there are very few Jews. Most of the population are Syrians and Greeks. And in fact, it's a beautiful place, a place, however, populated by uh, lots of non-Jews. But the place that they're going to, while beautiful, is extraordinarily unpopular for Jews. 
This, one com- this place one commentator calls a, a place of painful memories. Less than 200 years ago, uh, there was this great uh, king named Antiochus, and Antiochus won uh, control right in this part of Israel. In 167 BC, this king enters Jerusalem on a Sabbath day and he slaughters most of the population in the city of Jerusalem. He threatened with execution anyone who followed the laws of the Torah. He redecorated the temple to become a temple of Jupiter Olympius, a Syrian god with Greek clothing. That man, he won and secured his victory right in this place. And that's where Jesus is taking his disciples. Not only that, Herod the Great has recently uh, built a temple here to honor Caesar Augustus. And not only that, his son Philip made this place his actual home. Uh, Philip found a city in this region, and uh, he uh, took this city and he flattened it and he completely rebuilt it. He named the city Caesarea Philippi, and this city was a city that was dominated by Roman culture. To go to to the city is like uh, uh, dripping your toes in the pools of Caesar. This place is dominated by Rome, drips with Rome. It was the place of a huge defeat, and it's the place of everything Rome. But it's also the place of someone by the name Judas the Galilean. Do you remember those taxes that were imposed when Jesus was born? Remember that Joseph and Mary, they actually played by the rules and they went to Bethlehem that they might be properly counted, but not everyone responded to the taxes during that governor's rule as Joseph and Mary. Some, under the man Judas the Galilean, actually revolted. And in history, this man is very, very well known. Uh, This man is talked about uh, in Josephus, but he's actually mentioned in Acts chapter 5. Judas the Galilean is someone who rebelled against Roman authority. How dare Rome take a census and try and count me and try and tax me? And he founded a a school, a a school in which he had uh, followers, and those followers uh, rebelled against Rome. They sought to seek the freedom of the holy city of Jerusalem. He was killed and his people scattered. He also is from this region. It's a region of painful political memories. It's a region of the symbol of your oppressor. And it's the region of failed rebellion, hopelessness. And they're heading right through this territory of political significance. Now, I think that matters, but I just need you to hold that on the back of your head for a moment because we want to look at the second half of verse 27. And this is where uh, Jesus asks a question. But it's important to notice there that as Jesus asks this question, look at verse 27 says. Jesus asks his question on the way. They're traveling. They're going uh, to this place. And it's at that time that Jesus asks his questions. He says this, who do people say that I am? 
And it's very clear that when Jesus uses the phrase by people, he's referring to those who deny him. Who do those deniers say that I am? And, and the disciples, they seem to together answer him. Look at verse 28. Uh, to, they, they answer him uh, together. And we don't know exactly how long it took them to formulate their answer, but notice in verse 28 that their answer is pretty eloquent. Look what they say. It's almost as if they have uh, parsed the entire population of those who uh, deny Jesus Christ, and they come up with three categories. It's very neat and tidy. They say that some people think that he's John the Baptist. Herod does and wants him killed. Some people, uh, Jesus, think that uh, you are Elijah. Elijah, after all, had a very mysterious death, if he had a death at all. And some uh, think that maybe, Jesus, you're one of the prophets. What an ordered, controlled response that is. It's snappy. It has an eloquence to it. It has a, a bit of a rehearsed nature to it, even. But they're not being forthright, are they? You and I, as, we've, as we have looked at Mark's gospel, we know that that's not all of the story. We know that that's not how everyone feels about Jesus. Those who deny Jesus, they fit in one of these three categories. We know that the religious authorities from just earlier in this chapter have been looking for a sign from heaven. Why? Because they need to prove who he is. If there's no sign from heaven, he's a charlatan. That's just earlier in Mark chapter 8. We know from Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 5 that the majority of the crowds think that he's a mere healer whose fringe of robe can heal. All you have to do is touch that. In many ways, he's nothing more than a healer. The average Jew thought nothing in particular about Jesus. Doesn't Jesus look at them and call them clueless sheep with no shepherd? In his hometown, what do they think about Jesus? Well, it's actually very clear in Mark 6 and in Luke 4. Jesus, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, etc., etc. And when Jesus claimed otherwise, what did they try to do in Luke chapter 4? They tried to kill him. And then in the home of Jairus, what happens? Jesus walks into that home, and they actually laugh at Jesus. That's what they think about him. What about the pig herders in the country of the Gerasenes? They actually unionize against Jesus after the miracle of delivering the, the legion of demons. And what do they do? They beg Jesus to get out of town. Leave them. What do they think about Jesus? And when Jesus called his disciples... Was it not his own family that seized him because why? Mark 3 and John 10. Because his own family thought that he was losing his mind. It's a little bit trite to say that, well, Jesus, there's three kinds of people who deny you. Uh, some, of you some of them think you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and some one of the prophets. Now, the disciples knew that there was much more. The disciples understood that there was a significant amount of hatred for Jesus. And one commentator, actually writing during the Reformation, says that the disciples, for some reason, they're not giving uh, a full response. They're not giving a response that captures the open enemies of Jesus. They're just giving the response of those with a sounder and better judgment. But why? Why are the disciples doing that? Why not just tell Jesus, well, Jesus, it's funny you should ask. The list would be long. What do people think about you? Anything and everything other than the Son of God. 
You know, we can imagine their inner turmoil. These disciples, they've given more than a year and a half of their lives to follow Jesus. And yet even they themselves don't know fully who it is. And they know all of these opinions of others. They have to, and they have been the past year and a half, uh, living with those opinions of others. They know very well that those who follow Jesus as the Son of God are a vast minority. They know that. They themselves don't know fully who he is, but they know very well the opinions of others. And in fact, some of those opinions of others That's been their opinion as well. As some of the other people in verse 27, well, those other people sometimes have been the friends and family members of the disciples. The truth is, opposition to Jesus is just everywhere, and belief in Jesus is rare. What do you think people say today, those who deny that Jesus is the Son of God? What do they say Isn't it equally as cataclysmic, equally as vast? Some say that he is a great teacher, but he's certainly not the Son of God. Some people say that he's a dangerous charlatan and a scam artist. Some people will look at our Lord and Savior and look at the people of our Lord and Savior and say, if his followers seem to me racist and homophobes and sanctimonious do-gooders and moralists, well then this Jesus is the same. We know that these opinions are out there about our Lord and our King whom we love. And Jesus, he takes the disciples' hearts to that discomfort. Who do people say that I am? And they have an answer that's vocalized, but what's floating around in their hearts? It's with that in mind that Jesus then in verse 29 asks, what about you? Jesus actually seems unfazed by their answer. He doesn't correct it. He doesn't fine-tune it. He doesn't say, yes, what about? Uh, He doesn't ask a follow-up question other than verse 29. And verse 29, he asks them. The question, again, goes to all of the disciples together. And the the question really rolls off of his lips a bit like this. Jesus says, all of you, who do you say that I am? It's hard to tell if he's looking for a corporate answer, you know, kind of a three musketeers, uh, all for one, one for all kind of answer. It's hard to tell because he may actually be making eye contact with each of them. All of you, who do you say that I am? And for whatever reason, Peter, he takes a stand. And and as he speaks, we wonder if he's speaking for all, if maybe there was a brief uh, consultation that that Peter takes with the disciples such that they might refine their answer. I don't think that's the case. Peter lunges forward with an answer. He says, you are the Christ. In Matthew's account, he adds that Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And in Luke's account, uh, Peter uh, Peter says, the Christ of God. But make no mistake about it, Peter's deadly serious. You see, Peter, he knows the opposition to Jesus. He knows that he's on a team that doesn't look exactly like the winning team right now. But Peter says, you're the Christ. What do you think he means by that? I want you to know this morning that Peter doesn't fully understand what he's saying. 
He doesn't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. Uh, He says you're the Christ, and he's using uh, the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Meshah. It means to anoint. Jesus, you're the anointed one. You know, anointing is actually quite common in the Old Testament. There's a lot of anointing, but by far most of the anointing is for objects and not people. But when people are anointed in the Old Testament... They're usually prophets, priests, and kings. But in that period in between the Old and the New Testament, 400 years, in that period, the the Messiah was often expected not as a prophet or as a priest, but rather a king. And in fact, we heard this morning from 2 Samuel 7 that the people were to expect a king. Psalm 2 is about this as well. Because when the monarchy had failed, the people of Israel found themselves to be in exile, and it was during that period in particular that expectations of a king ran rather high. Jeremiah the prophet talks about this in Jeremiah chapter 23. And the Messiah was largely this hoped-for king who would come and liberate. And over those 400 years in between the Old and the New Testament, this hoped-for king was to be the one who was anointed by God who would throw aside all of the oppressors. And so Peter says that Jesus, he's the king of God's anointing, the very fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. But Peter, he really has just supplied the the proper title. He hasn't really understood what this anointed king of God is. Do you remember that miracle that we saw last week of the man who was blind and was given vision in stages? He thinks they're people, but really they look like trees that are moving. And Peter, he seems to be in that trees that are moving kind of stage. One commentator says that uh, Jesus, or says that Peter has uh, a, a fuzzy vision right now. He doesn't know, for instance, that Jesus is going to be the king who will ride an animal of peace into the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't know that Jesus will be the kind of king who will carry a towel about his waist that he might serve his people by washing their feet rather than carrying around that waist a sword. He doesn't know that this will be the king that will sacrifice his own life rather than inflicting suffering on all who stand in his way. He doesn't know that this will be the king who will voluntarily, silently die as a ransom for many. Peter, he he doesn't understand this. But this is God's king. And in Peter's mind, no doubt about it. This is God's king. And with the knowledge that he has, he might not be the best evangelist or the best apologist. But what he knows is true. What he knows is true. And we need to confirm that Jesus is actually pleased with the response of Peter. Jesus doesn't have a disfavorable regard for Peter's answer. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now think about that. Peter doesn't know fully what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, but he knows enough for Jesus to be the object of his worship and affection. I offer that because it's in Scripture, but I offer that as a comfort to those of you who are sure that you don't know as much about the one you profess faith in as you should. It may be that 
Peter is confessing that his confession is unrefined. You remember where Mark gets his information, don't you? It's from Peter himself. And it could be that Mark only volunteers, look, Mark, I said he's the Christ. That's what I said. Peter, at this point, when Mark is writing, he knows that then he didn't know as much as he does now. But what he knew, as little as it was, was true. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to be very sure that you have properly considered Jesus the one whom you have rejected. You may think that you've discerned the world and your role in it, and that you have everything necessary for your pursuit of peace and happiness and whatever it is you're pursuing. But if you're not a Christian, do you really know as much as you know? Do you have all of your questions answered? How will you deal with the simple questions of little theologians that they ask instinctively? Do you have answers for their questions? And then what happens when life goes a little bit crooked? Will you be equally unshaken in your rejection of Jesus Christ, in your poverty, in your terminal illness, in your chronic pain? Have you taken care of all the questions of life that may come before you and that I believe and the Bible believes are resonating within you anyhow, like what happens after you die? What is your ultimate purpose? What is your true identity? Why is there suffering in the world? Why do I dream of justice and restoration and a time of no more weeping when I've never actually seen that in this world? If you're not a Christian, would you hear me? Understanding who Jesus is, that's your new priority. But if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you need to know that what you do know about Jesus is true, even though it's incomplete. Now, of course, we want to know more about Jesus. We want to know him in his word. We want to live better as his servants. We want assurance and we want holiness. And we certainly know that we need to study our Lord in his word and we need to pray to him and we need to participate in the church body, which is his body. And we also know that one day we're going to know much, much more. But I want you to know this as well. What Peter doesn't know, Jesus is going to share to him. How badly do you think Jesus wants Peter to understand the kind of king that he is? Peter knows that Jesus is God's anointed king, but he's missing much of the great details. But look where Jesus leads the disciples. He leads his disciples into the den of false kings, Antiochus Epiphanes, the one who had authority and the one who abused the followers of God without authority. Caesar Augustus, whose name is imprinted upon this very city, a city that has become the celebration of Roman power. And then finally, the place of political uprising that led not to success, but to failure. And that's where Jesus takes Peter, that he might teach Peter about his true kingship, you see, understanding who Jesus is is the most important thing in life. And what the Christian needs to understand is that Jesus is with you right now to teach you more and more about himself and to cause what you do know to grow. 
And Peter and the disciples are being brought into the, the vice of political oppression that Jesus might show why his kingship is different. Do you think, Christian, that Jesus might be doing that today? As we look around us and as we feel the authority of oppression, as we feel the authority uh, of ideas that are antagonistic to that which we read in Scripture, do we feel a vice tightening around us? Do we feel smaller and more powerless than we ever have before? Well, that's the landscape for Peter and the disciples learning about the difference of Jesus' kingship. That's a great encouragement in this passage. We don't know how the kingship of Jesus is going to unfold as the world becomes increasingly hostile to Jesus and his followers. But what we do know about Jesus is true. And he has promised to share more and more about himself so that what we believe becomes less and less fuzzy and more and more clear. Well, the disciples, they're being brought into a kind of territory that we'll talk about next week. But I want us to understand that Peter, though he doesn't understand fully what Jesus is as the Messiah, that Jesus stays with him to teach him more. And he even uses the pressures of culture and authority that he might show more of his kingship to Peter and to the disciples. Expect to hear more about this next week. You might feel like you know little Christian but you know enough, and Jesus will give you more. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we do thank you that you don't leave us. We thank you that though you may be susceptible to our definition of who you are and who Jesus is, you are with us and you teach us. And in your sovereignty, you use even the kingdoms of the world to teach us who our one true king is. Please teach us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.